Wednesday night for the uh, Christmas Eve service, uh, Thursday night, whatever night that was. Um, Thanks. If you have a Bible with you, you can open to the Song of Songs. We'll look at uh, the end of it, chapter 8, verses 4 through 7, and verse 14. The text is also printed in the bulletin for you this week. Um, Next week... um, Next week, it starts the new year, so we're going to start a new series, and it'll be, um, I, think, I think, seven weeks, maybe at least seven weeks, um, and it'll be kind of the, this is maybe goofy alliteration, it's the ABCs of, uh, of our church, of our particular church, ABCs meaning Ascension's Basic Confession, Ascension, Ascension's Basic Calling, Ascension's Basic Character, you know, Ascension's Basic C-Word, uh, <laughs> Um, but ways uh, to to refresh us and to focus us and to bring us clarity about what we're doing, who we are uh, as the church in this place, and um, and why we're doing what we're doing. Um, and so it's a it's a great chance for all of us to kind of uh, refocus and um, uh, and invite friends and family who might be interested in knowing what what is the church, what's the main stuff about the church, and it'll kind of be uh, systematized for us there at the beginning of the new year. So we're starting that next week. Um, uh, this week, we're finishing the Song of Songs, which we've been looking at through uh, Advent, and it's taught us some pretty, uh, I think, wild things about God, about uh, our relationship with Him, and it's taught us in some pretty unique ways. It's given us perspective on the gospel that we might not otherwise have um, if this book weren't included in the scriptures, right? Uh, God, um, it's not an extraneous book. It's, uh, I think God thinks it's a necessary book for us uh, to look at. And so that's what we've been looking at the last several weeks. This morning, we're looking to the climax, the ending. The, it's the climax of divine love. Uh, it's the return of the Lord Jesus Christ for, our, uh, for the consummation of our union. Um, so it kind of fits an Advent theme, looking ahead, anticipating his return. That's what we're going to talk about this morning. So let me pray, and then we'll read the scripture. <clears throat> Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this word. It's uh, difficult for us to understand, and, um, and so we pray for your help. We pray that your spirit would overcome the obstacles, the resistance in our hearts to uh, understanding it. It usually is chalked up to our resistance and not a matter of uh, intelligence or the intelligibility of your word, but the fact that we just don't like what you have to say to us. And so we pray that you would help us, that you would change us from the inside out so that we would be able to receive your word. And uh, not just your word generically, but the word of grace in, uh, in Christ, in the gospel. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The bride said, I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. Who's that coming up from the wilderness, leaning on her beloved? Under the apple tree I awakened you. There your mother was in labor with you. There she who bore you was in labor. Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm. For love is strong as death. Jealousy is fierce as the grave. Its flashes are flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. Many waters cannot quench love, neither can floods drown it. If a man offered for love all the wealth of his house, he'd be utterly despised. Make haste, my beloved, and be like a gazelle or a young stag on the mountains of spices. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So last week we talked about um, 
the feeling of absence that is common to us uh, in this world, uh, talking about really a legitimate sense of God's absence or the absence of Christ since Christ himself, Jesus, is away from us in heaven. He's not here bodily. He's in another place and inaccessible to us bodily. Um, so there's a legitimate sense of absence. And, um, and this poem, this, this song, it's poetry, right? It's, it's, uh, it's sung poetry. It's a song. That, uh, the Song of Songs ends without really resolving ends without resolving that sense of his absence. There's still a longing. It ends with this sense of longing. Um, it leaves us hanging with a sense of anticipation, not the experience of closure. It looks ahead to a closure, but it doesn't leave us with a sense of the feeling of closure, right? Um, and in that way, it feels like a lot of other books of the Bible. We talked about this a little bit last week in the sermon discussion that we had. Um, it's like Mark's Gospel, Right? We've, we've looked at Mark a few years ago, uh, or other books, but Mark's gospel ends on a note of confusion after the resurrection. Right, Jesus, he lives, he dies, he's raised from the dead, and the feeling you get is, what? <laughs> what just happened? And uh, it says, this is the last, probably the last verse of the, um, of the gospel. It says, they went out, the disciples went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. It's like the record just scratched to a halt, right? Uh, that's what it's like at the end of that book. It, it's like the music of a beautiful song ending in some strange note that didn't make sense. And uh, maybe that's divine warrant for uh, music not ending the way that we expect. little side note, a little practical application. <laughs> like all the Matthew Curl songs that don't end on dough, I think this is a legitimate theological uh, implication. Uh, for songs without resolution. And in fact, it seems like such a strange ending to, to commentators um, that commentators often say that what you have here at the end is just a bunch of fragments of different poems that, you know, maybe they had this little parchment with this little bit on it, so they said, well, we'll put that in in the editing process. It doesn't really make sense, so we'll stick it at the end, right? <laughs> a lot of commentators say there's just jumbled fragments of uh, poems here at the end of the Song of Songs. And honestly, I'm not quite sure what to do with some of the verses. Maybe spending more time with it uh, would have helped, but understanding poetry was never my strong suit anyway. So, uh, But I think it's clear enough. I think it's clear enough that the themes that we've seen through the poem, they feel like at the end here, they just run straight to the edge of an ocean cliff and off. <laughs> that's uh, That's how these themes feel, like they're just running to the edge of a cliff and jumping off, which is actually a pretty consistent theme in the scriptures. That feeling that you get with this, this is going somewhere. This is lurching forward, right? Our relationship with God hasn't yet reached its zenith. We're rushing forward towards something largely unknown. Uh, and we're waiting for something with probably uneasy anticipation. Uh, the Christian is someone who is off balance, the Christian is someone who's forward-leaning. It's like a runner with momentum, right? Uh, they teach you this in sprinting. It's just lean your body forward, and you'll be falling forward, and then it's just a matter of picking your feet up and moving them fast enough to catch you, right? Uh, it's like the momentum there of a runner. Um, Christianity is largely shaped by our hope, our anticipation of the future, 
or forward-moving. What you really believe about your future it determines how you live today. Now, if I'm honest, uh, my hope is not always a clean, pure, refreshing feeling. Right? Uh, I feel some tension between what the Bible says about the future and the way that things look right now and certain things that I know I will face in the future. Near future, you know, maybe a distant future, but I will face certain things, and there's tension with that about what the Bible says about the future. The Bible's pretty clear that a Christian's ultimate future will be glorious. Um, as we're united to God in eternity, living in his immediate presence, it's glorious. Right? The Bible also knows that this world is not, in a sense, it's not the way that it's supposed to be, that this life is often characterized by suffering and that death is gunning for every single one of us. In fact, that enemy, death, it stands in between us and our Lord. And statistically speaking, since 100% of Christians who have died so far died before they met their Lord, before they entered into his presence, um, uh, the only alternative being his coming back before we die, statistically speaking, um, to get to where Jesus is, we'll probably have to die. And that's got to be a scary thought for everyone. It raises so many questions that we just don't want to ask. What's that going to be like? How much is it going to hurt? Will I completely lose myself in the process? Will I really make it out the other side into glory? Um, Meanwhile, as we're trying to avoid asking these questions, uh, it's an inevitability that each one of us is rushing toward and the brakes have gone out. Uh, we're, we're using up our quota of allotted heartbeats and breaths. But there's a kind of dread, there's a kind of absolute existential dread that Christians can actually look squarely in the face and reject. Uh, the Bible doesn't gloss over the hard questions about the future. We might want to. Uh, the Bible doesn't do it. But it also doesn't leave us in desperate uncertainty. It propels us into the future with hope and with longing. Right. Um, so the bride says in verse 4, I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. So this is actually a refrain in the song that we've heard already a couple times. Um, and I think it's, it's talking... Uh, ultimately, theologically, about the great last day. Right? And the way that it speaks about that day, the way that it characterizes that day, is as the stirring up of love, the awakening of love. Now, it's a fearsome love, to be sure. The, the love that we face that's coming for us on the last day it's a fearsome love. It's a love that none of us can handle right now. That actually God knows we can't handle. His love is too great for us. He, uh, he released information about his love slowly over the process of thousands of years when Moses asked to see his glory, the glory of a God of love. He said, you can't see it. It would kill you. 
He's actually so loving that he spared us a full vision of his love. He, he lets it trickle slowly to it. We can't handle his love. It's coming for us. It's a fearsome love that's coming for us. It's a love that will set all things right like a refiner's fire does. And you get the sense that the bride is kind of torn. There's a tension here. It's like, I want that to happen, but don't stir it up until it's ready, right? Um, don't awaken love until it's ready. But this fearsome love is love, nonetheless. It may be fearsome, but it is love. The end will be a wedding feast. The end will be a divine honeymoon, which is to say it'll be a new beginning. Um, and that's the destiny that we're lurching toward, ready or not. Ready or not, here I come, he says. So who is that, verse 5, who is that coming up from the wilderness, leaning on her beloved? The Bible begins with an earthly marriage, begins with a marriage between Adam and Eve. And it ends with a cosmic marriage, the new Adam and his new Eve. So the new Eve that's coming up out of the wilderness here, coming up out of her temptations and trials and wanderings and purification because of her unfaithfulness. The new Eve that's coming out of the inaccessible places into the accessible places, the promised land. The one who's coming up it says, coming up toward Zion, that's, that's language of uh, ascension, right? Toward, toward God's mountain, toward his garden, toward his temple, toward his city, toward his people. This one who's coming up, ascending to the place where life means to be in God's presence. This new Eve is the church made up of sinful, broken people who need to lean on their beloved, on his arm, in order to make it home not only need to lean on him, but want to lean on him. Like John on his breast, the one whom Jesus loved. Want to lean on their beloved because he is beautiful. As we've seen throughout the Song of Songs. So, this leaning. Um, you hear this criticism about Christianity, that it's a crutch for the weak, you know. Um, well, you need to lean on something. Good for you. Poor, weak-minded, you know. Good for you. It's, it's, it's helpful to you. You, you need that crutch. Um, I have a friend, uh, Robert Bruce, who wrote this uh, sort of a poem about this. He says, no, I don't need a crutch to lean on. What I really need is a fully automated motorized wheelchair, complete with a built-in respirator, EKG monitor, independently controlled crash cart, and a team of round-the-clock world-class surgeons who are supervised by the AMA Board of Directors, Directors and the Surgeon General of the United States of America. Though perfect for mobilizing an injured person, a crutch cannot bear the weight of a dead man. Um, that's the reality. We don't just need a crutch to lean on. We've got to put our full weight on our beloved, on Jesus Christ, and we do that when we trust him for our salvation, to reconcile us to God, to guarantee our reception in his house, in his home, in his family. So who is that coming up out of the wilderness, leaning on our beloved? Is that you? 
On whose arm are you hanging for life, for support, for guidance? Are you dependent on Christ for his grace, or do you imagine maybe reaching heaven on your own or uh, speeding into the great unknown on your own merits? Or do you lean on other arms? You trust in other gods to deliver you, the gods of money and sex and power to give you the things that you, you want or that you need? Or are you trying to reorganize the wilderness around you, not even heading in the direction of the promised land of the of, of Mount Zion? Are you trying to reorganize the wilderness so it looks like a nice little garden paradise, complete with everything to meet your needs for, for life, ignoring the vast difference between a nice life here and the riches of glory there in God's presence? <clears throat> Verse 5b um, says, under the apple tree, it may be under the quince tree, um, I'm not sure that matters much. <laughs> um, exotic fruits like quinces. Uh, under under the, the fruit tree, I awakened you, she says to her bridegroom. I awakened you. There your mother was in labor with you. There she who bore you was in labor. So um, the bride stirs up her beloved for love. He's sleeping under the tree. She stirs him up for love. I'm not sure exactly uh, but it seems like this is a reference, this, this reference to your mother in labor with you, and we're here, we're going to consummate our love in the same place where she bore you. I think it's a reference to the, the creative life-giving power of love. Life takes place here. Um, and this is the place of our love, this awakening of love, this, this consummation, it will be potent. It will be a new world. It'll be a new creation, the making of all things new and delight everlasting. The place where, it, where life means being in God's presence, in communion with him. And that's something that every Christian can look forward to as an absolutely sure hope because of the grace of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So like the bride, we long for this consummation. Um, and, and the, the very end of the book of the song, um, the last verse of our text, verse 14, says, Make haste, my beloved, and be like a gazelle or a young stag on the mountain of, mountains of spices. Um, come and ravish me. We long for that consummation, but, uh, as we said earlier, there's a big obstacle between us and our fairy tale ending. And it's death. How can we lean into the future with a sure hope and with longing when we know that it's going to mean our death on the way? How can we do that? How can we lean into it? Doesn't death destroy everything? Isn't it too strong a foe? Doesn't it win in the end and render everything else meaningless? Shouldn't we be trying to find the brakes before we hit the wall? The bride knows this. She knows that death is looming out there on the horizon. And, uh, and she suspects that it has the power to rip her away from her beloved. So she petitions him. And this is maybe the best part of the whole song. It's the part that makes it seem maybe most obvious 
most apparent that this song is not just talking about two earthly lovers. She petitions him and says, Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm, for love is strong as death, jealousy is fierce as the grave. So she's, she's setting up a contest between the unstoppable force and the immovable object. Right? She's setting up a contest between love and death, between jealousy and the grave. That jealousy, that's a, that's a fine thing in the scriptures. It's not the kind of paranoid jealousy that somebody has. It's a, it's a, a jealousy that uh, a spouse has, a right jealousy uh, for the, the chastity of their spouse, uh, the faithfulness of their spouse. <clears throat> we make wedding vows. One of those vows commonly is, till death do us part, right? We make that vow, till death do us part. And she's imploring her lover to nullify death's power, to rend. Please nullify death's power to, to do us apart, she says. She asks him to set her as a seal on his heart, on his arm. And a seal, usually we talk about theological stuff, right? We talk about signs and seals. We talk about sacraments. It's ways that God is uh, claiming us for himself and making us to know that he has claimed us for himself, the seal that he has set upon us in baptism, um, stamps uh, us and marks us as his in this world. So a seal like this is an identifier. It's an identifier, and she's asking him, make me part of your identity. Make me part of your identity. Make me part of yourself. In the core of your being, as a seal on your heart, right? or in the power of your might, as a seal on your arm that works mighty things for you. Make me a part of your identity. She says, she's asking him for mutual ownership. A couple times we've heard in a song, my beloved is mine and I'm his. I'm his and he is mine. And in the incarnation of the son of God, you know, her asking this, make me part of your identity. The person of Jesus Christ, the incarnation, we have the beloved's answer. He said, yes. It's like she's proposing to him. And he said yes when he came into the world and took on our, our human nature. And taking on our humanity, he made us a part of his own identity. A part of his own identity. He's willed for his own identity now to be defined by humanity. To be defined by relationship with us. As one of us. He has set us as a seal on his heart. He has taken a heart, a human heart, and, and as a seal on his arm. He will not be identified apart from us. He is God with us. And he's the God who saves us. And he is that forever. He's made us a part of his own identity. He has consented to give his bride claim on his life. Mutual possession. 
And for all the inevitability of death and all the power of the grave, Christ's claim on us and our claim on him is stronger. The Lord is a jealous lover. And again, that's a good thing. It's not paranoia. It's a rightful claim that he has on us, and it's a rightful claim that we have on him. He's given us that right by his grace. But his claim on us, he is jealous. It says in Exodus 34, it says, You shall worship no other God, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. He's this kind of love. He is jealous, so much that that's his name. It's not just an attribute. That's part of who he is to be this jealous. And, and jealous won't share his bride with any other. Jealous will not share his bride with any other. And Augustine said, just as death achieves heights of fury in the work of destruction, so love achieves heights of fury in the work of salvation. The incarnation of the Son of God in the person of Jesus Christ is the heights of fury. It's jealousy. We've seen it. Athanasius says he put on a body so that in the body he might find death and blot it out. Find that rival and kill him. And we know who won that battle. The gospel reading that Jerry read from John 11, he has power over death. When he heard of Lazarus' illness, he said this illness does not lead to death, even though he deliberately stayed where he was so that Lazarus could die first because he loved him. It does not lead to death. It's for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. And Jesus told his disciples, he had to tell them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake I'm glad that I was not there so that you may believe. And let us go to him. And Jesus said to Martha, when he arrived, and she, she said, if you were here, he wouldn't have died. He said, I'm the resurrection. I'm the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And then um, after that uh, reading, uh, didn't read the whole story, but when, when Jesus saw Mary, the other sister, weeping at the tomb and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled because he loved Lazarus, who's dead. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him? But some of them said, couldn't he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Well, if he loved him, he would have spared him from death, right? But Jesus uh, cried out with a loud voice and said, Lazarus, come out. And the man who died came out. Because his, his love doesn't necessarily spare us from death. But his love is stronger than death. His jealousy is fiercer than the grave. He won the ultimate victory once and for all. Not here uh, raising Lazarus back from the dead and Lazarus was just going to go on and, and die again sometime later. That's not his ultimate victory over death. He won that through his own death. 
and his resurrection on our behalf. He went right into the jaws of the enemy and he broke its teeth on its way out. He was crucified, he was dead, he was buried, and on the third day he rose again. God raised Jesus Christ from the dead bodily to live forever, never to die again. And he did it by the power of the Holy Spirit, the spirit of holiness, the spirit of love. God's love conquered death in the person of Jesus Christ. And so now, with Paul, in 1 Corinthians 15, we can say, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So our Lord is already on the other side of death as the one who has set us on his heart as a seal. The one who has set us as a seal on his arm. He's already on the other side of death. The one whose identity is bound inextricably with ours. It says in Isaiah 49, Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. And those are marks that will never go away. And in some sense, he carried humanity through death with him. So that we can know that his love will defeat our death too. Robert Jensen is a commentator on this. He says, he did not go... He did not go into death without us. And he will not fulfill his resurrection without us. Indeed, whatever might have been, our reality as the seal of his identity is such that as the risen one, he cannot be himself without us. He cannot be himself without us. If he doesn't bring us to resurrection glory with him, he will not be himself. Jesus will return. Jesus will take us to himself. He will be with us bodily. Him in a body, us in a body. Glorified resurrection body. Forever. It will happen. Or he would not be himself. There has been a blood oath. There has been a resurrection witness. There's been a spirit guarantee behind that promise, and your death has no power to stop him from keeping his promise. Death is not the end. Death is not the final word. Death is not the omega. Jesus is. He says in Revelation 22, and there's so many connections uh, between the Song of Songs and John's writings, and his gospel and letters and, and Revelation, uh, I don't know if anybody noticed, but through this whole series, basically, we've looked at uh, quotes from uh, John uh, from the Gospel and Revelation. But it says in Revelation 22, at the end, and it's about the end, Jesus says, Behold, I am coming soon. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. So the end is not a place, the end is not an event. The end is a person, and we're rushing toward him at breakneck speed, but we're rushing toward him. We're rushing toward Jesus Christ. His love is strong as death. His jealousy is fierce as the grave. Its flashes are flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. 
Many waters cannot quench love, neither can floods drown it. If a man offered for love all the wealth of his house, he'd be utterly despised. You can't buy love like this. You cannot buy love like this. You can't earn it. You can't deserve it. You can't do anything to gain it. But he loves you. And he loves you because he loves you. Because that's what kind of God he is. That's what kind of Savior we have. That's what we see in the person and work of Jesus Christ. He has set his love upon you freely, which makes it all the more remarkable to us that he would do such a thing, that he would love people like us. The bride, uh, the bride simply asks. And she is given claim over his life, given a love that defeats death, given the promise of everlasting life. Again, Revelation, it's 21. He who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. So he wants you to believe this. It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. Put your faith in Christ. I'm going to close with this quote, um, again from Robert Jensen, but this is on the beginning of the bulletin here, the front cover. The Bible ends as the song does. The most ancient recorded item of Eucharistic liturgy, so liturgy at the Lord's table, things the church has always done when we, we gathered around communion together. The most ancient recorded item of Eucharistic liturgy is the church's entreaty for her risen Lord to come, and that quickly, to his bride gathered round the loaf and cup. Let every lover say often to the beloved, make haste to me. Let them even append some proximation of the amen. His advent is sure. Thus ends the song of the lovers, the song of the Lord and his bride, and the song of all human love embedded as it is in the song of God. It's a beautiful song. Amen. Let's pray. Come, Lord Jesus. Come quickly. Amen.